I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. I think knitting is cool. There are things going on that we're not privy to, and so we need to hear these things. At least every three books, there's a poisoning. For (laughs) sure. The next chapter. CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. I spent 12 years of my life in the food industry as a chef and a caterer, and I cooked a lot. But I have to admit, I've never made British coffee cake or fresh Windsor soup. But I might now, after reading Recipes for Murder, 66 Dishes That Celebrate the Mysteries of Agatha Christie by Karen Pierce. She's an Agatha Christie super fan and food lover, and she opens today's program. In a half an hour, Ryan B. Patrick brings us his interview with Joan Thomas. Joan won the Governor General's Literary Award for Fiction for her last novel, Five Wives. Now she's back with another gripping and nuanced page-turner. It's called Wild Hope, and it probes timely topics like privilege and corporate greed. And we'll close today with an If You Liked That, You'll Love This with Bertrand Bickersteth. Plus, later, best-selling thriller writer Catherine McKenzie answers the Proust questionnaire. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. Agatha Christie is the best-selling novelist of all time. Now, just think about that for a minute. This is someone who first began her publishing career more than 100 years ago and stopped writing in the 70s, and still she reigns. Both Dame Christie and her work have been studied, parsed, and analyzed for its settings, travels, forensics, and the plots. But little attention has been paid to the place that food plays in her stories. Until now... Karen Pierce, a Christie superfan, has written Recipes for Murder, 66 Dishes That Celebrate the Mysteries of Agatha Christie. Karen joins me now in the Toronto studio. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the next chapter. Hi, Ali. Nice to meet you and nice to be here. Karen, you're a super fan, and almost to prove that point, you recently got back from an Agatha Christie convention in Britain. When did this fascination with her work begin? You know, when I was a kid visiting um, my grandmother's house, I found uh, one of her Agatha Christie's and started reading it. And I was probably 10 or 11. And then I just read them all. And then I just kept reading them all because they're really comfortable to read again. And Mm. I still enjoy them to this day. So I'm going to ask you this, you know, childhood loves, uh, and, and, and I share this with you, I loved Hercule Poirot, I I loved reading about him. But often childhood loves don't last into adulthood. Yours certainly has. Why do you think that is? I think it's the quality of Christie. She's easy to read. She's totally accessible. So, you know, you read other Golden Age authors from when she was actually writing, and they're not accessible anymore. They, you know, they just feel very, very dated. And yet when you read Christie, 
it's kind of like Shakespeare. The themes are all the mm. same, and it's just really accessible. And, People still enjoy it. And your book is at its core a recipe book. When did the food in Agatha Christie's Mysteries begin to take shape as a subject for, for your book? Well, I've always been a foodie. I come from a family of people who love food, love to make food, entertain with food. So food has always been a big part of my background. But honestly, I was looking, I kind of collect cookbooks, and I was looking for an Agatha Christie cookbook. And there wasn't one. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find one. There is a French language one, but that's it. So I thought, well, okay, <laughs> what would it look like if there was one? And I just started working on it. Maybe, you know, people, even though they have read Agatha Christie, have not really questioned this. How often did Agatha Christie use food as a medium for poison in her plots? Oh, I'm going to say at least every three books there's a poisoning for <laughs> sure. <laughs> she liked poison and she knew poison. She was a dispensary aide both in the First World War and in the Second World War. So she knew her poisons <laughs> and uh, used them a lot. Now, Hercule Poirot, Agatha Christie's famous mm -hmm. Belgian sleuth, is a gourmand, which maybe that's why I loved him all these years. Here I thought it was just because of his investigative skills, but uh, maybe that <laughs> was the reason that I, kept, food yeah, too. I came coming, kept coming back to the the books, maybe for that reason, but can you paint a picture uh, of his attitude towards food for us? You know, a wonderful little scene, the way he feels about food, is in Mrs. McGinty's Dead. It starts, the book literally starts with him in a restaurant moaning that he can't eat more than three times a day. Doesn't know what to do with himself. He can only eat three times a day. He gets kind of dragged into this mystery where he has to go stay at a a B and B, which is run by you know ex military guy, ex military colonel and his wife, and they don't know how to cook. They don't know how to do anything, and he just completely is beside himself. But, you know, by the end of the book, they're very good friends. He's taught her how to make an omelet. He's bought her a recipe book, a cookery book, as he calls it, and, you know, goes on from there. So, yeah, he really likes good food and despairs of people not enjoying their food. So I really like that little vignette where he's cursing this woman for, you know, the overcooked peas and the undercooked this. But in the end, he teaches her. So as I went through the decades uh, in the book over the years that Christie was writing, one of the big takeaways was the shift in a servant class and then how food was prepared and served in Britain. Can you talk about what changed there? Well, certainly when she was a young woman, um, you know, everybody had servants. In fact, at one point, Christie really believed that the future would look like she couldn't believe in in the future everyone would have a car but not have a servant. Mm. That was just in, incomprehensible to her. So it begins very much with having cooks and and kitchen maids and stuff like that. And that is how the food is mostly prepared in the 20s and in big hotels and stuff. But as you get to the 30s and the war years, we've got less and less and less servants. So now labor-saving devices mean um, women are doing their own cooking and hiring in help every now and again. And that starts to be a theme of, 
of only having one servant and hired help and servants aren't really living in. And then you get to the end where there's virtually no no servants at all and people are eating in diners and kitchenettes and luncheon rooms and yeah, really changes. One of the interesting things I found out researching this is that the whole concept of restaurants really came from the French Revolution where all those high cooks were kind of put out of uh, work, basically when there was no more aristocracy to be hiring them. So they started opening up their own kitchens. Oh, and, just to uh, put their skills to use somewhere. Put their skills to use, and so then that's how they sort of the upper middle classes started finding out about good food, and then it slowly drifted all down. Speaking of upper middle class, a, a hotel that turns up in Agatha Christie's novels frequently is the Savoy, famous mm-hmm. London hotel. You have adapted recipes from there, like the Peshmelba, for example. Uh, the Savoy was in many ways home to a food revolution, as you yes. know, you're saying. What happened there? Well, that's a little bit of, you know, yeah, like bringing good food, French food in specifically, to the English taste buds. Um, lobster is one. Lobster was like a a despised fish because it was so all over the place in Cornwall and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the French started really cooking it with sauces, that it came to Britain via the same chefs into the Savoy. And now all of a sudden we have some, you know, these are our, our special dishes now. Right. So Lobster that, Newburgh. Lobster Newburgh, yeah. etc. So lots of those stories like that. Throughout the time that Christie wrote, England went through, as you mentioned, two world wars. And particularly hard would have been the Second World War with yeah. with the with rationing and and you know that continuing into the fifties as well. How's that reflected in her writing about food? Well, a murder is announced is is literally about that. All the neighbors have basically a a black market between them, and they they exchange. Quinces and jams and sugar and they trade pieces of meat and whatever you've got growing in your backyard and they go in and out of each other's back doors, which makes it crazy for the police who are trying to solve a mystery. But it's very much a part of it. And the cake that's baked in that particular mystery, you know, she has to call it a barter raisins from one neighbor and sugar from another neighbor and and a bar of chocolate someone gave them for Christmas last year is being saved up for this. So, yeah, it's it's really, really very much a part of that story. We should remind our listeners, too, who haven't kept up with their Agatha Christie reading, that she often sent her characters abroad as well. And it wasn't just these few countries in Europe. There's also food in her books from the Middle East, the Caribbean, yep. Greece. Um, she even has a recipe for Italian spaghetti and meatballs. How adventurous an eater would you say she was, given her... Oh, really adventurous. She really liked food a lot. She was raised on great food by her parents and all those servants and stuff. So, no, she she really did like her good food. Apparently, you just couldn't put caviar anywhere near her because she would just consume it. (laughs) And I swear she had lobster for every single celebration she ever did. But a really funny story I got out of one of her biographies was when she was in 
I believe this is Baghdad. She would get the animal wranglers to milk the buffalo so she could make the cream out of the buffalo to make profiteroles for tea. For tea. Yeah. Not even a special occasion. No, just for tea. (laughs) (laughs) There are some lovely staple recipes in the book, orange marmalade, uh, the perfect omelet. Right, that that Poirot illustrates to a character, fish and chips. What was it like for you to create and test these recipes? I assume you had a test kitchen oh, going for all of these. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I had three other friends that I would test, then they would test, so we we would make sure that they that all the recipes worked. And you know, some of them are boiled potatoes, so they, we could make them work pretty good. Some of the harder puddings and cakes and stuff did take a couple of attempts. And uh, there is no pita bread in this book, and I have friends that know why. (laughs) Just never got that one to work. So we have a lovely recipe for hummus instead. Okay, and the pita would have to be store-bought. Yeah, you have to get that. We won't be able to follow your recipe for (laughs) pita bread. Uh, Agatha Christie did live a long life, so uh, I assume this testing will only add to your longevity as well. I think so. Yeah. Do you have a favorite, or are there? is it too hard to pick one? Do you have favorites? It's really hard because they're all my favorite babies, but as I've been reading and reviewing them, I've got to say another time, the chicken soup— after the funeral's chicken soup. Whole chicken soup. Whole add, chicken yeah. soup yeah. is so interesting. There's no noodles. There's no vegetables. It's a cream of chicken soup, and it's just chicken. The trick was that, though, there was no salt in the recipe at all. It's a 1940s recipe with no salts. But both myself and the and two testers agreed, salt it to taste. Mm-hmm. You really need to. But, wow, what a fabulous chicken soup that is. Okay. You did something I enjoyed at the back of this book, which is you offered menus. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us what is on the menu for tea with Miss Marple. Well, obviously, there's tea. So that's that's a start, how to make a perfect cup of tea, which you'll find, I think it's from the moving finger. Then we have tea sandwiches, of course. And um, I made these ones... Crab and salmon together, a nice mixture, and I hand-mixed it. Now, you could you could use, you know, sort of a more, more modern mixing. It's very unchristy of you to do so, <laughs> but you could, I suppose. Yeah. You could. But don't forget to cut the crust off the bread because that's very important. Then I also put in here the old seed cake, which is featured in Bertram's Hotel. And this is a really old seed cake. Like, this recipe... You know, they're talking about it in the 1800s, 1600s. I mean, seed cake is a English cake, a very, very English cake. And it was delightful to make. So I recommend people try that. And then to top it off, we have a little bit of uh, gingerbread because it's a little spicy, like Miss Marple. Got to have a little gingerbread loaf. I'm starving. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) Um, In celebrating the food in the writing of Agatha Christie, you're also celebrating the breadth of her imagination, her genius for plot and character. She wrote 66 detective novels, and uh, you have 66 recipes in your book. In all your years of reading and studying her, what conclusions have you come to about her ability to keep turning out plots and new storylines? 
You know, I never actually thought about it until I started reading all these biographies. And it's really kind of amazing. She just would be like, oh, oh, I guess after I put the laundry in, I think I'll, I'll do a little writing and turn out a book. You know, and this is the same thing when she was traveling with Max in the Middle East. Uh, oh, no, I'm, I'll, I'll just be all, all right here. Just, you know, give me a call when we're ready. And, you know, she's produced another book. It's really quite amazing. She calls herself a housewife who writes books in her spare time. Sure. Like if you drop by to visit, she would just put down her pen and go go visit with you. She didn't have any writing hours or rules or anything. And she wrote 66 books, something like 140 short stories, 30 plays, two biographies, autobiographies, and six Mary Westmacotts. Yeah, housewife who was able to support her family, <laughs> uh, extended family, since yeah. her, her 20s. Yeah, yeah. Very, very profitable. Like, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Pretty Karen. amazing for a middle-class housewife from England. Very nice to chat with you today, Karen. It's very nice to talk to you, too. Karen Pierce is the author of Recipes for Murder, 66 Dishes That Celebrate the Mysteries of Agatha Christie. Catherine McKenzie practiced law for 20 years, and for 10 of those years, she also published a book. She often worked seven days a week. Then, during the pandemic, she left her law job to write full-time, and she has never looked back. Her most recent novel is Have You Seen Her? It's a story of dark secrets set against a backdrop of the search-and-rescue world. Catherine McKenzie lives in Montreal, and that's where she was to answer the next chapter's Proust questionnaire. Name your favorite writers. So some of my favorite writers include Ella Montgomery and um, Nick Hornby and Jane Austen. Uh, they're my favorite writers for different reasons, but probably because I read each of them at sort of various formative parts of my life. Ella Montgomery is a teenager. I have red hair and green eyes and I'm from Canada. So of course I saw myself as Anne. Jane Austen, who I read in my 20s. Uh, a little bit of a late introduction to her. And then Nick Hornby, who I've read off and on for years. Um, I just find his books fun and and motivating as a writer. And when I first started out writing, I thought I was the female Nick Hornby. Tell me about your favorite character in fiction. I mean, I have to think I have to go with Eliza Bennett, um, Lizzie from Pride and Prejudice, just because she says what's on her mind, which feels still so fresh and relevant today. Uh, there are many moments in Pride and Prejudice that stick out for me as, as key Lizzie moments, but I think all of her interactions with Mr. Darcy, uh, the way she turns down his first proposal and just cuts him down to size, um, and even in the end when they, they do get together, she isn't ever throwing herself at him or chasing after him. It's a meeting of the minds. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? If I could change something about myself, I would try to think before I speak more often. I do have a tendency to sometimes just say whatever's on my mind, maybe like Elizabeth Bennett, and that's not always a good thing. What is your favorite occupation? Uh, my favorite occupation is, I think, what I do for a living now, writing. But I did also enjoy practicing law for a very long time, and there's still great parts of that profession as well. And if I could pick a profession that I would never get to do, I'd love to be an astronaut.
I just think going into space is cool and it's something that I've loved the idea of since I was a kid. But I don't think I would pass the test for many, many reasons. <laughs> what do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? The lowest depth of misery for me is not seeing the sun. So I could never live in the Pacific Northwest, for example, because I can't go days and days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks without seeing the sun. Where would you like to live? Well, lucky for me, I like to live where I do live, which is in Montreal. But if I could pick Montreal up and put it down next to an ocean, I would do that. So if I wasn't living in Montreal, anywhere next to an ocean. What is your greatest fear? My greatest fear is having regrets. And, and by that, I don't mean like living your life like you're gonna die tomorrow. I don't think that's a good way to live. But, you know, saying yes to things so that you don't wish you had done something later in life. And, and trying to live, you know, in the now and appreciate what goes on now. Who are your favorite characters in history? Uh, some of my favorite characters in history are uh, Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I. I studied Tudor and Stuart history um, in university in my undergraduate degree. And, you know, it's really quite extraordinary what they did um, for the time when people didn't think that women could be rulers. And they were, and they were very successful at what they did. And the fact that they just, you know, they had a privileged upbringing, but they certainly weren't brought up for that. And they did it anyway. What is your greatest extravagance? My greatest extravagance is travel, for sure. I like going different places, and some of the places that I'm going this year, I'm going to London with my lifelong best friend. I'm going to the Rafael Nadal Tennis Academy in uh, Mexico this winter. So those are some extravagant things that I'm doing. What is your greatest achievement? I would say my greatest achievement to date is just like I have my 15th novel is coming out and so that's pretty amazing. I never really thought I would write one novel, let alone 15, so that's pretty cool. And then sort of Kotai, uh, I pleaded a case, a couple of them, but anyway, one in particular at the Supreme Court of Canada, which I won. Um, and so that was super satisfying as well. That was Catherine McKenzie answering the Proust questionnaire. Her latest thriller is Have You Seen Her? As metaphors for life go, knitting turns out to be a good one for the 16-year-old girl in Bliss Adair and the First Rule of Knitting. It's a YA novel and a coming-of-age story about Bliss, a teenager, who loves the predictability of math and knitting. Here's the author Jean Mills to tell us more. This is the story of a girl who is a math and knitting whiz who can solve problems every day. But when she's faced with the problems of her friends and their life challenges, she finds that it's not quite as easy. In fact, it's a lot like the first rule of knitting. The first rule of knitting is something that a friend told me many, many years ago. It is basically don't look too far ahead. When you are knitting something and you look ahead on the pattern and see row 50 and it just doesn't make sense to you, it's because you haven't knit rows 1 to 49. And 
life can be a lot like that. We look ahead as we try to plan our lives, but so many things happen that get in the way of that goal or, the, or that expectation. And that's certainly true of the teenage years. I think this book probably started with my love of yarn and knitting and fiber. I think knitting is cool. And I can tell from watching social media that a lot of teenagers and young people think that knitting and yarn and fiber arts are cool too. So it seemed like a nice hook to to appeal to readers. I also feel that knitting is maybe underestimated by people. It's an extremely soothing meditative activity. I wrote this book during the a time of great stress, the pandemic years. And knitting and yarn were were my go-tos. And did you know, fun fact, that soldiers coming back from the First World War were taught to knit because it was such a a soothing and um, healing kind of activity. It releases the right chemicals from your brain. My stories always start with a character popping into my head or a scene or a voice. And in this case, it was a girl, a smart girl, sitting somewhere with her yarn and her needles, knitting away and worrying and being afraid and and stewing about things that were going on in her life. Bliss Adair is a talented, smart, somewhat introverted teenager. She's excellent at math. She is excellent at knitting. She is a good daughter to her parents. She is a good friend to uh, Bethany and Anderson, her two best friends, and she is a go-to person. She runs the help desk at her parents' yarn shop. People come to her with their problems, and this is one of the things that she is good at, helping people with their problems. So when we meet Bliss, she is sitting there happily knitting away and a problem presents itself, a problem involving uh, a boy from school. The book kind of revolves around Bliss's journey to address her friend's problems, to listen, to be helpful, and in some ways to solve her own problems, which she doesn't always realize that she has. So it's a novel about kids connecting, about teenagers understanding and facing their problems, and in the end, maybe finding their way through with better connection than they had before and better understanding, too. That was Jean Mills talking about her YA novel, Bliss Adair, and the first rule of knitting. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the Internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sean Michaels, author of Do You Remember Being Born? And you're listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1.
If you listened this summer, and I hope you did, you would have heard my colleague Ryan B. Patrick host the summer edition of the next chapter. He's getting a bit of a break for the next few months. He'll still be here, but we're not working him quite as hard. I'll be a guest host of the show, working with Ryan, and we're going to start our work together today as he tells us a little bit about the interview he did with Winnipeg writer Joan Thomas. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Ali. How's it going? Looking forward to working with you as well. Yeah, should be a good time. Definitely. So before we hear about my interview with Joan Thomas, let me tell you a bit about her and kind of set up the premise with her new novel. Like, So, Ali, you strike me as someone who likes to stay hydrated. Um, are you a tap? <laughs> Fluid levels intact? I, I see I your water bottle there. beside you with an empty water <laughs> bottle, so you nailed it. You nailed, I'm so <laughs> hydrated, there's no more room for any water in me or my bottle. I'll, I'll go with tap. I'll tap, go with tap. tap I put water? some faith in our, okay. uh, our, our civic yeah. uh, politics. And, right. Yeah. I drink straight from the tap as well. I have no issues with that. So that said, uh, Joan Thomas's new novel kind of looks at provocative questions around wealth and privilege and water. Like what gives someone the right to bottle and sell water? What does it mean to acquire wealth? What does it mean to grow up with wealth? And what does an artist do if they stop creating art? So uh, the story Wild Hope, it explores a love affair between Isla. She's a chef with a very successful farm-to-table restaurant. And Jake, who's an artist who comes from a he comes from oil and gas money, but he struggles with how that money was acquired. So things get a bit complicated when a rich friend of Jake, someone whose business involves the selling of bottled water, he comes into their lives and the resentment between the men simmers to a boil. So this one's called Wild Hope by Joan Thomas. It's very thoughtful and very thought-provoking, and I had definitely had a great chat with Joan talking about it. Well, this sounds very exciting. Obviously, water, a hot topic. I, I'm very anti-water, <laughs> water, bottled water, uh, and very pro-water. And also, I was the chef of a very unsuccessful restaurant many years ago. So this book... There's some parallels there's there. There's some parallels there. Um, <laughs> well, thanks for all that, Ryan. Thank you for that context. And with that background, here's your conversation with the author of Wild Hope, Joan Thomas. Hello, Joan, and welcome back to the next chapter. Hi, Ryan. So good to be back. Awesome. So uh, we met briefly back in 2019 when your book Five Wives came out, which of course won the Governor General's Award for Fiction that year. And what I love about all your work, Joan, uh, they've all gotten a sort of recognition, be it award nominations or what have you. What sort of expectations do you place on yourself when you decide to write a new book? I think that I really set out to capture the current moment. And that's a funny thing to say because several of my books have been set in the past, mm -hmm. but they were always driven by something I wanted to figure out about the present day. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a lot to unpack in this book. And, and some of the characters in the novel Wild Hope, Joan, they push back against the systems of wealth, privilege, and entitlement. Some reach for it. And what got you thinking about systems of class and wealth as they play out in the lives of these characters? Well, I think we're seeing a sort of grotesque version of capitalism in the world today. And mm -hmm. I would say that, that the issue of climate change has really asked us to contemplate inequality in a way that we didn't do it before. One of the catalysts for me was a book that I read several years ago, um, Nathaniel Rich's Losing Earth, which yes. is a, a history of climate science in the U.S., and yeah. it really puts its finger on the fact that everything that we're experiencing now was known 50 years ago, and the, the Reagan government decided not to act on it, instead to sort of say, we'll leave the future problems to future generations. Mm. And I was really 
appalled reading that book, as um, I think everybody has been who has heard this story, that the oil and gas industry, which was prepared to pivot to renewables, instead put that money into disinformation. And I guess what got me about it was that a small cadre of individuals could make decisions that would affect the whole planet in such Mm -hmm. a catastrophic way. So, you know, I'm kind of looking at these individuals in this, this book, you know, flawed characters like Reg Bavacqua, one of my characters, mm. and the disproportionate amount of of power that they hold. Right. So is that definitely that metaphor of like kicking the can down the road, so to speak? So you have that in the background. In the foreground, you have two people falling in love, which is Jake, who's an artist, and Isla, who is the chef. Isla sees some of Jake's work at an opening, and he sees her see it and sparks fly. <laughs> so what essentially happens between them at this time? Yeah. Well, I thought that she gave him the ultimate compliment in that she was shaken by his work and he saw this in her face. You know, there's a certain point for an artist, as for a writer, where you stop hearing and and seeing your own work. And, you know, I experienced that as a writer sometimes. A page um, loses its power for me because I've spent so long on it. But when you read it in public and you see people people's reaction, people being moved by it, it brings it back to you. And it it felt as if Isla did that for Jake. Mm -hmm. So Jake, um, he's pretty much tormented by the wealth and privilege that he grew up in. He's the son of a cabinet minister who is an oil and gas booster. And this legacy weighs so heavily on Jake. How does he see his father? I see Jake as having a lot of external privilege, but, but lacking the sort of ease in the world that comes with having been seen and respected. His father sort of saw him as, you know, an avatar for his father's own ambitions, and Mm. Jake continually fell short of that. You know, Jake's feelings for his father are very intense, but but a lot of it is, you know, rage and fury at his father's values and the way he sees them spreading through society. Yeah, Joan, so uh, in this novel, Wild Hope, Jake is obviously tortured, whereas on the other side, Isla grew up in a bohemian household. She was homeschooled and pretty much free to follow her passions. How how does this shape or inform her psyche? Well, I loved writing Isla because I think I've often written characters who are a little bit more like Jake. You know, I wanted to mm-hmm. stick my fingers into their the cracks in their neuroses and, <laughs> and analyze them. I really like the psychological novel. But I wanted to create a character who had the capacity to kind of go back to first principles and and take the world on freshly and change as, as the world changes. Um, and so... In Isla, I saw that person. She feels good about herself. She's not plagued by self-doubt. Jake says if she sees something as good, she does it. And so it was important to me to write a character like that because we do have a lot of wild hopes for, for the people that will maybe take us forward into a very problematic future. And I saw Isla as being one of them. Yeah. So you have Jake, you have Isla, Sparks Fly, and then the third wheel or the third person in this triangle <laughs> is Jake's childhood friend, who is Reg Bevacqua. Yes. I say his last name, Be- uh, Bevacqua, Be- because yeah. it, it turns into his brand, Bev Aqua Blue, which is the bottled water that he's turned into this multi-million dollar company. How do you see uh, Jake and Isla? How do they see this product that Reg sells, that which turns him into a very wealthy person? 
Um, well, in their mind, it's quite emblematic of capitalism today, the, the commodification of mm. everything, the commodification of water. And uh, I think Isla is absolutely perplexed <laughs> as to how such a, a flawed empty individual as Reg could have the kinds of privileges that he has in society. And Jake feels almost complicit in the creation of Reg because they had such a competitive relationship as boys and and Reg was sort of like a charity project Mm. for Jake's parents. In Reg, um, Jake's dad saw, I guess, um, better raw material for creating a little capitalist in the image of himself. So Jake feels his sense of complicity is sort of deepened with respect to Reg. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in how innate competition is in our being and this sort of links between a capitalist system and the individual impulse to be competitive. And I I try to explore that in these two characters. Yeah. So Isla's restaurant is set in the Ontario countryside. And the novel, Joan Wild Hope, is very much a novel of Toronto and the surrounding regions as far moving as far north as Georgian Bay. But you, you live in Winnipeg and you grew up in Manitoba. So how did (laughs) you, what's the connection here? How did you come to know these places in the book so well? I, you know, I, I love Toronto. I've I visited a fair amount. So I was working from memory. I was working from online research. And then in 2021, my husband and I drove to southern Ontario, and we took a a really lovely route, which was crossing Manitoulin Island and then taking a ferry across to the Bruce Peninsula. Um, And we spent some time there hiking on the escarpment and exploring. And, of course, I found all kinds of things that I had to change and and Mm -hmm. fine-tune. But that's that's the sort of work that on-site research asks you to do, and, and I love it. It's a huge pleasure. And that's what um, I really love about this book. It's this this really cool study of contrasts and expectations and values and trying to holding your feet to the fire in terms of how you value the world or what you understand about the world. So in particular, Jake despises capitalism, and he carries deep concern about the planet's future and well-being. And he's worked very hard to kind of distance himself from his family. But he, he's still thinking that he came up and steeped in that kind of culture. So how can he see the world in any different way? Like, what do you think about that? Do you agree with Jake in terms of how he sees the world, um, his standing versus how he thinks things should be? I do. I think in Jake, I'm kind of asking that question, can we change? <laughs> and it's a, it's a question I'm asking constantly in my in my life can we evolve fast enough and um i think that jake does change in many ways he he wants to use his art to change the conversation he's very idealistic um but he sort of gets swept up into some old patterns and the book becomes a mystery in its last third with all yeah. of those familiar tropes and, and, you know, clues and motives and suspects and so on. And I didn't foresee that happening, but it, it kind of delighted me when it did because I think Jake is pulled back into old stories. And that's that's the thing that we're trying to do as societies in the global north is to question old stories and, and try and step out of them. So Reg is the off-bottled water baron. And Jake, they have many long-standing resentments. Even as kids, there was a lot of competition between them. And this competition at its very heart and root seems to be very capitalist. Uh, so despite Jake's 
hatred of the system. He's a guy who likes to win. So what do you see in that desire in terms of his will to win in this type of circumstance? Um, well, I hope that that desire to win can be channeled in other directions than sort of individual material success. And that certainly is what Jake is trying to do. But it is it is something I think about a lot. Our our ambitions they they are very individualistic in Western society or in the global north certainly. And you know I'm beginning to think that maybe maybe if we are looking for if we have some hope of answers to solving some of the real crises that they lie in a different direction than individualism. Uh, so when you were writing this book, Joan, do you, do you see room for hope? Um, <laughs> you know, the word is, it's very, very loaded it, among environmentalists, among people who are active in the fight against climate change, because it sounds a little bit passive. And, and you know, at one point I had this conversation with my agent and I said, you know, I've come to prefer the word resolve. And yeah. she said, you know, I'm not sure that wild resolve has quite the, <laughs> <laughs> the same ring to it. Now. <laughs> right. As a title. <laughs> But I like the phrase wild hope because it operates on a few levels too. As Jake, you know, tries to reconnect with the natural world um, and ground his work more closely in nature, I think the world the word wild resonates with that too. Thanks, Joan. Thanks so much. It's so great to connect with you again. Well, it was lovely to have this conversation, Ryan. Thank you. That was Ryan B. Patrick in conversation with Joan Thomas about her novel, Wild Hope. Bertrand Bickersteth is a poet and educator, and as his social media handle says, an all-around thinkerist. His work looks at the intersections between history and race, and that's also a favorite subject in his reading life. Bertrand has just finished the award-winning poetry collection Magical Negro by Morgan Parker, and he joined Ryan B. Patrick to talk about it, plus the Canadian book he recommends as a good matchup read. Bertrand, hello and welcome back to the next chapter. Thank you very much, Ryan. Uh, first off, uh, I want to say I appreciate you as a poet and how your work kind of highlights your perspective as a black man who was raised in Western Canada. So it, it's really great to finally talk to you. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, growing up on the prairies as a black person, you didn't really get very much representation. And so it's been nothing but a joy for me to have my work out there and to get that kind of feedback. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I understand that you have two books with us today. Tell us a little bit about the poet Morgan Parker. What brought you to her work? Uh, Morgan Parker is a young, savvy African-American poet. Well, can I say youngish now? I think mm. she's almost 40. Let's so, do that. You know, yeah. <laughs> youngish. She brings this kind of unblinking attitude to daunting topics, hence magical Negroes. Mm. She really only has three books so far, although her first one has just been reissued because it was so popular. And they're all fairly brief. They're really quick reads. On the other hand, they can be very long reads because they are packed and potent with ideas. And so rereading is a must with her. You're, you're actually compelled to do 
rereading. Right. Great, great author, for sure. So Magical Negro won the National Book Critics Poetry Award. But let's talk about that term, Magical Negro. It's such a loaded term. Uh, what, what does that title mean to you when you first hear it? Yeah, so I remember when uh, Spike Lee uh, brought this term out. Uh, this is around 2000 or something like that. I can't clearly remember, but it was around that time, the beginning of the 2000s. And I hadn't heard of it before, but when I read about it, when I was thinking about what he was talking about, I realized that actually it is a trope that I have seen around. And essentially what he was doing was complaining about these same old pop culture and stereotypical tropes that Hollywood likes to trot out with that really reinforce a certain kind of stereotype about black people and about blackness in general. And mm. what you have here in these films are depictions of black characters who almost always support a usually white male protagonist in a very significant way, sometimes demonstrating some kind of extraordinary and even supernatural ability. So this is where the term magical Negro comes from. So now when I saw it in the title of uh, Morgan Parker's poetry, I wondered, not knowing if she was black or anything like that, I wondered if this was going to be a critique of the trope mm. or if this was going to be a kind of unconscious reflection of that trope. Luckily, it was the former. Right. So let's explore that. What are some of the subjects that the book explores? What, what, what does Morgan tackle in Magical Negro? Yeah. So the first thing I think that really strikes me about this collection is the way in which it intelligently engages with pop culture. You can get a sense of that just from listening to the titles of her poems. Okay? So just like the title of the collection captured me, you will see her titles are really witty and savvy throughout. So listen to this. These are just three titles I give to you from her poems, and mm. you know you're in the hand of someone <laughs> interesting. Okay, Poem number one, Lilac Wine by Eartha Kitt versus Lilac Wine by Jeff Buckley. Right. Title right. number two, Ode to Fried Chicken's Appearance on Scandal. <laughs> Title number three, Gladys Knight on the 200th episode of The Jeffersons. I mean... You can go on and on. When you see things like that, you think, okay, I got to read this book. Right, right. So <laughs> I have to. It sounds like there's a nice range, like emotional, uh, pop culture, and also a vision of what it means to be a black woman in the United States right now. What, what particularly stood out for you in this book? I think it is the way in which she actually merges that pop culture sensibility with two other strands. She has a historical sensibility as well as a kind of loyalty to a black literary tradition. And she weaves these three things together in really illuminating ways. And in fact, I think what she's trying to do is she's trying to outline the contours of contemporary black aesthetic. Yeah, so it sounds like that book is very intersectional in terms of race and history. And I know that there's a book by a Canadian that you recommend as a great companion read to The Magical Negro. Can you tell us about that? For sure. So I would like to tell you now about Nisha Patel uh, and her work called Coconut. Nisha is from uh, Edmonton, Alberta, currently I think uh, known as a Miskwitchewiskigan uh, by the Indigenous Communities. She is a queer, disabled, South Asian spoken word poet 
Uh, she was Edmonton's eighth poet laureate. She's won a myriad of awards, and she brings all of that intersectionality to her work as well. Nice. So what themes and ideas kind of run through the poems of Coconut by Nisha Patel? I think that Nisha being a spoken word artist is key here because a lot of her poems can be performed off the page. And she has even told me she often writes her poems uh, by speaking them and then she writes them down. But with Nisha, the performative quality of her poems, I think, does link her to Morgan Parker. Both poets produce works that wrestle for your attention. They demand your attention. They are not shy. They are not meditative poems. They are actually fed-up poems. They're exasperated poems. They are side-eyeing poems and face-palming poems. They're packed with these subtle insights, but even the subtleties of their poetry are in your face. Many of her poems are effective because they actually walk on this kind of this line of what's comfortable and decent versus what's uncomfortable and indecent. Uh, And this is that quality of demanding your attention, in fact, that I mentioned. Yeah, I think what strikes me about these two poets, Morgan Parker and Nisha Patel, is the everydayness of being rationalized. Essentially, I, I feel these two books are about I am here, I am human, I have value, I exist. Like, what's your take on that concept of, of racialized in 2023 when racialized implicitly uh, refers to a, a default? Right. So I mentioned how I feel that both of these poets deal with poems that are not meditative but that are kind of in-your-face and that are exasperated, fed-up poems. Mm. And I think that, that quality comes from us being in this era of 2023, post-George Floyd, and still suffering from this kind of weird time loop in which things from the past that we are told are long uh, finished and um, have run their course and we have progressed from still keep happening again over and over and over. Yeah. So um, we're talking about race, but we're also talking about genders. Both these collections focus on women and their experiences, both personal and political. What was it like for you as a man to read these books? I truly value that experience to be able to gain perspectives that I otherwise would not necessarily have uh, received or would not have got. And um, I find it very easy to sympathize and to empathize, in fact, with um, women's causes and the feminist perspectives, uh, particularly uh, since gaslighting, which we know is a feminist concept uh, originally. Mm. Gaslighting is something that I think most people of color, especially I think uh, black people in Canada, can relate to through the nation. This is a nation that has always told us there's no such thing as racism here. Racism exists in the United States of America. You're so much better off here, et cetera, et cetera, right? Right. And so we have come to recognize this this phenomenon is something that can be applied to us regardless of our gender, I think, therefore, it behooves us to pay attention when people who are not necessarily uh, in the same camp as us, not necessarily in the same uh, political identity group as us, when they speak about things that we don't experience, it behooves us to recognize that there are things going on that we're not Uh, privy to. And so we need to hear these things and we need to learn about them and to be aware of them so that we can further those causes as well. 
Yeah, so Bertrand, both these books, Magical Negro by Morgan Parker and Coconut by Nisha Patel, they pretty much hit your sweet spot in terms of exploring the intersection of race and history. And that's also the same subject that you investigate in your poetry collection, The Response of Weeds. Uh, how do those these two books that you talked about today resonate with your own work? Yeah, so you're exactly right. I think that these books do hit that sweet spot that I too am interested in. I think that it's not enough for us as artists to simply produce art for the sake of art. I think that it's very important that we always recognize that we are people in a society engaging with people in a society, and therefore our art needs to do that as well. When I said that uh, Morgan Parker is uh, kind of trying to outline the contours of a contemporary um, African-American or black aesthetic, I think in part what she is um, latching onto, what she's referencing or uh, accessing, is a a cry that came from the black arts movement, in fact, of the uh, 1960s and the early 70s, in which art was meant to somehow support the people. And I feel as though both of these women are managing to do that in their, their own particular way. And in answer to your question specifically, I feel as though I didn't consciously try to do that in my poetry, but I think that any poetry that asserts itself against the power structure that presents itself as normal, I think it's automatically going to be helpful to those of us who find ourselves on the wrong side of that power. And in that sense, I think, I do have a kind of kindred spirit with both of these these works. And I'm very glad that you uh, pointed that out. I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. Bertrand, thank you as a thinkerist. Thank, thanks for your <laughs> book recommendations. And it was so great to chat. And hopefully we can do this again very soon. Thank you very much. Pleasure to meet you, Ryan. Bertrand Bickersteth is an educator and poet who lives in Calgary. He's the author of the collection, The Response of Weeds. And the two titles he talked about with Ryan today are on our website, cbc.ca slash the next chapter. And that's it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. And thanks this week to Olivia Pascorelli, Laura Antonelli, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, Genevieve Scott on all the questions around consent and complicity raised in her novel, The Damages, It's set on a Canadian campus in the late 90s and then moves forward 20 years to reveal the fallout when an old and ugly story comes to light. And I'll talk with iconic bookseller and storyteller Aita Sadu. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.